In this book of Jude, we have the apostle and the people of God, false teachers and their doom, Christian duties and a doxology, a power-packed epistle. Here now the reading of God's inspired word, profitable for us, Jude, starting at verse 1. Jude, the servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Mercy unto you and peace and love be multiplied. Beloved, when I gave all diligence to write unto you of the common salvation, it was needful for me to write unto you and exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares, who were before of old ordained to this condemnation ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness, and denying the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. I will therefore put you in remembrance, though ye once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Likewise also these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael, the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not. But what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain and ran greedily after the error of Balaam for reward and perished in the gainsaying of Korah. These are spots in your feasts of charity when they feast with you, feeding themselves without fear. Clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots, raging waves of the sea, foaming out their own shame, wandering stars, to whom is reserved the blackness of darkness forever. As Enoch also the seventh from Adam prophesied of these, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousands of his saints to execute judgment upon all and to convince all that are ungodly among them of all their ungodly deeds which they have ungodly committed and of all their hard speeches which ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These are murmurers, complainers, walking after their own lusts, and their mouth speaketh great swelling words having men's persons in admiration because of advantage. 
But, beloved, remember ye the words which were spoken before of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, how that they told you there should be mockers in the last time, who should walk after their own ungodly lusts, these be they who separate themselves, sensual, having not the Spirit. But ye, beloved, building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. And of some have compassion, making a difference, and others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garments spotted by the flesh. Now unto him that is able to keep you from falling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to the only wise God our Savior be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and ever. Amen. Thus far the reading of the epistle of the holy apostle Jude. Here in verses 1 through 3, we have the apostle, a description of the church, an opening benediction and the occasion for this letter. He calls himself a bond slave. He also calls himself the brother of James. Now, if you look in the lists or registers of the apostles in the Gospels, you find that this brother of James is also known as Labaius or Thaddeus. Labaius means a man of heart or a courageous man, the same thing as Thaddeus means, one of a large heart or one of courage. You can read of this in Matthew chapter 10, verses 2 through 4, as also Mark 3, 16 through 19, Luke 6, verses 14 through 16, and Acts 1, verse 13, the register of apostles after the death of Judas. Now, this is who's writing. Whom does he write to? Verse 1 tells us, To them that are sanctified by God the Father and preserved in Jesus Christ and called. Here, notice, all three persons of the Godhead are involved in their salvation. This word, uh, the idea of sanctified or set apart, foreknown by God, this is a perfect passive participle. Those foreknown and still known by God. That's the idea of the perfect tense. It's an action that, that was completed in time past and continues to have effect to this day. As if you opened a gate and you put down, sometimes they'll have a pole that comes off of a gate and it stands open. It was opened in the past and it stays that way. So he says, you are sanctified. You are sanctified by God the Father in the past and you continue in that state right now and this was done to you, not by you. It is passive. They and we are a sanctified people, God doing the sanctifying. He says also that they are preserved in Jesus Christ. It's the same. It's passive and it's perfect. Christ has preserved you once for all and continues that work of preservation even to this very time. And then this word called refers to the application of the redemption of Christ, the effectual call. Who does that? The Holy Spirit. So you have the Father, you have the Son, and you have the Holy Spirit all saving this holy people. Not merely called externally, 
as washed with water, but called internally washed with the Holy Ghost and with fire. The scriptures, he says, that's who he's writing to, the scriptures are the unique property of God's holy people, set apart by the Father from all eternity, preserved and kept as a treasure by our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternity. Let us rejoice in God's testament, his monergistic work, the work of God alone. And God gave us the words of this testament by the apostles, including Jude. He wishes them mercy, peace, and love to be multiplied. Mercy is the knowledge of God, the forgiveness of sins through Christ Jesus, peace with God, peace of conscience, love toward God and love toward our neighbor. He wishes these to be multiplied. Now, this cannot be multiplied on God's part, can it? God's love is endless. God's mercy is without bounds toward his people. We can't multiply God's love. We can't multiply his mercy, but rather we can multiply our own experience and knowledge of these things. The clarity with which we grasp these things. The growth we have in the peace of Christ, in love toward him and toward our neighbor. These may be multiplied. Jude wrote to them concerning, he says, the common salvation. There isn't one salvation for us apostles and one for you peons down there. No, this word koinos means that which belongs to everyone together. It is a common salvation owned by Jude and by you as much as by the least of the saints. Now in sanctification, which is not what he's talking about, in sanctification there may be degrees, there may be greater or lesser. It's all of one kind though, it's even common in that sense. It all has to do with being renewed in the image of God and growing in grace. He exhorts them in this epistle to contend earnestly for the faith. This means to strenuously make efforts, to struggle as in hand-to-hand combat, wrestling against principalities and powers. This is what he exhorts us to do. What are we to contend for? My particular opinions? No. The faith, he says, once delivered to the saints. What is this? This, this faith once delivered. Now, He's going to tell us to remember the words of whom? The apostles, right? And he's going to show us that the words of the apostles are the antidote to the falsehood we're supposed to agonize against. So what is then this faith once delivered? We call it the scriptures. In particular, the words of the apostles of Christ delivered to the people both by their living voice while they were alive and preserved by God in written record in what we call the New Testament. This is the faith once delivered that Jude will point us back to, as we'll see, his whole epistle is very much a parallel with what? 2 Peter chapter 2, the words of the apostles. And what does Peter tell us he wrote his letters for? So that we would remember the words of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ and the words of the prophets of the Old Testament. This is the faith once delivered. I note then that all believers must be contentious. 
not in our manner at all times, but in reference to the apostolic faith. We're to be courteous as a general rule. We're to be kind and patient, long-suffering, just as God has been with us. But here Jude says, I want you to be contentious. I want you to fight. I want you to struggle. Why? For your own opinions? No. For the truth of God's word delivered to us in what it teaches and what it requires of us. That's where we should be contentious. This is a rebuke to the soft or effete Christianity. Deeds, not creeds, brother. Don't tell me about what I should believe. Well, that's what Jude says. Fight for the faith once delivered. Let us then agonize in combat for this apostolic faith. Christ has spoken to us by the mouth of Matthew, of Peter, of Paul, of James, and John, of Jude. The Spirit of God speaking through the ancient prophets. Let us agonize for that faith. Then we have a sketch of the false teachers and their doom. In verses 4 through 19, this is a parallel, though not an exact copy, of 2 Peter chapter 2. He tells us in verse 4 that these false teachers, you might be surprised at some of the audacity of teachers, what they will say. He says, don't be surprised. Why? Because of old, God wrote down a book. And in that book, he wrote their name. And do you know what that book is? It is the black book of reprobation. God, from all eternity, wrote their names down so that they might be damned even before the foundation of the world. Now, do you know that when we talked about the saints, it's perfect and it's passive, right? It is done in time past and continues to this day in its effects. And it was done to them, not by them, sanctified by the Father, preserved by Jesus Christ, do you care to guess what this ordained word is? Maybe the grammatical construction, you know it's an exact parallel to verse 1. The elect, on the one hand, are sanctified and preserved by God in time past, that is eternity actually, and the effects continue until now. What about the reprobate? God just figured it out yesterday? Kind of took him by surprise? He wanted everyone to be saved and oh. He got very disappointed because these guys just wouldn't do what he wanted. Right? <clears throat> Wrong. Before of old ordained to this condemnation. John Trapp said they were set down in the black bill. Edward Lee says from eternity or of old. That is from eternity which is elder than time. The Dutch annotations, by God in the register of reprobate persons, a similitude taken from men who keep their registers in which they set down the names of those they have to do with, each one in his order. God has a name book. He's got a register and their names were on it. Poole notes that they crept in unawares to the people of God, yet not without the providence of God so ordering it. John Gill notes, reprobation is of the same date with election. If the one is from eternity, the other must be so too. 
since there cannot be one without the other. If some were chosen before the foundation of the world, others must be left or passed by as early. If some were appointed unto salvation from the beginning, others must be foreordained to condemnation from the beginning also. And this is exactly what Jude says. Perfect passive participle. Done to them, not by them, all the way from of old, and the effects continue until right now. God's not surprised by false teachers. God is not caught off guard, we might be. They might creep in unawares to us, but God knew it all. He wrote them down from of old. And what is the mark of reprobation? Is it just some zap that happens and we have no clue? That's what the Mohammedans believe. That that decree of salvation is so unknown that it might change just at the last minute. Well, you could do everything and believe everything Allah says, but when it comes to death, who knows whether your sins will be forgiven. Is that how it works? No. Turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness. That's how you know. Here's the black bill in its evidence. How does it show itself? Well, God is gracious. That is true, isn't it? God forgives sins freely by his grace through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. God has wiped away the crime and the stain. Now, what does that mean in terms of how I ought to live my life? Does it mean that I may live as I please? That I may sin all I please and still have remission? Free from the law, oh happy condition, I can sin all I please and still have remission. Is that what it says? No. That's what the reprobates say. Let's take the truth of God's free grace and turn it into a license to do what is evil, what is lascivious. This is how the devil thinks. God's grace, however, does not abolish the law. It establishes the law. By faith, we establish the law, Paul says. You can't actually obey the law until you're redeemed and washed in the blood of the Lamb. It's not possible. Because the twin graces of justification and sanctification come together to the people of God. We don't turn the grace of God into a license to do evil, nor do we say it diminishes any of the duties that God imposes on us because we're justified freely by his grace. In fact, those who oppose the doctrine of grace taught in scripture agree that the grace of God turns into licentiousness. And then they say, well, I oppose licentiousness, so I oppose the grace of God. You see, they agree with the false teachers. They're reprobates as well. Because they believe that somehow if you affirm the grace of God, you will inevitably teach people to be licentious. And do you know, just as a historical fact, that some of the most vile reprobates were those who opposed the doctrine of grace? How is that? Well, because you dishonor God in one way, you'll dishonor him in all. Here, Jude points them back to the salvation from Egypt. God saved and then he destroyed them. Why? Because they did not believe. The angels, holy in their first estate, cast down into everlasting chains, reserved unto the great day of judgment. The cities of Sodom, Gomorrah, and those around them, what did they do? Gave themselves over to fornication, going after strange flesh, flesh not designed for the purpose that they used it for. 
And what happened to them? Did they escape by the grace of God? Were they freed from the curse of God? Did Israel make it to the promised land in their wickedness and disobedience? No, the answer is clear. He destroyed the Israelites. He cast the angels down from heaven. And he sent hell from heaven onto Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. You see, it's very clear. God does not say, I'm gracious, therefore you may live like a sodomite. There are no rainbow fish in the scripture. There is no, hey, God has now abolished the law. Let us live as we please because we're forgiven in Christ. God has proven again and again and again in heaven and upon the earth that he will not tolerate lawlessness. They suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. Notice, they despise dominion. They speak evil of dignities. The fifth commandment, what's that? Ha! There's no one above me. I'm not going to submit to anyone. I'm not going to call someone my superior. No, I despise those who have authority over me. That's the teaching of these wicked and godless teachers. Now notice, much unlike this, we have the disputation over the body of Moses. This is not recorded in the Old Testament. Remember we saw in Hebrews 12 that Moses said he exceedingly feared and quaked. That wasn't recorded in the Old Testament. The names of the magicians in Egypt, that wasn't recorded in the Old Testament, 2 Timothy 3.8. How did these apostles find these things out? Are they inspired by God? Do they know the omniscient God who can reveal things to people and did he speak through them? Yes. Therefore, do I need to believe in, oh, let's say some apocryphal books the Jubilee of Moses or the, uh, the Apocalypse of Enoch. No, I don't need to accept them in the least. I don't need to accept the heathen poets and prophets that Paul quotes either. Just because they quote them and they say something that's true does not make them the word of Almighty God. That aside, here there's a disputation. And what does Michael the archangel do as an angel under authority? I rebuke thee, devil. Is that what he says? The Lord rebuke thee. God, my superior, crush you. That's what imprecatory prayers are, by the way. It's a call on our superior so that we are not left to ourselves and our own devices. Now, he says that these are like beasts. How do beasts know? Do they actually know? Well, they have sensations. They have feelings. Do they hear the voice of God? Do they read the Bible, for example? No. What they know, they know sensually or naturally, and that's how these false teachers are. Will they listen to the word of God? No. They will listen to their own sensations, their own feelings, their own experiences, science, falsely so-called psychology, or whatever else. He describes their lawless and useless and unprofitable state, these false teachers, in verses 11 through 13. Then, as I mentioned, he quotes Enoch, the seventh from Adam, who prophesied of these false teachers, saying, Behold, the Lord cometh with ten thousand of his saints. Here the apostle goes back. We have no prophecy of the end of the age before this. This is the earliest one. God has recorded in the book of Jude this prophecy from Enoch. 
How many generations? Adam down to Enoch, just seven, including Adam. He is the seventh as you count Adam and beyond. And here he speaks through this man Enoch and pronounces judgment against the wicked. Now, do you remember what was going on in Enoch's day? Well, the ark was in preparing, wasn't it? What sort of people lived in that time? Were they godly people? Were they believing people? No, they were wicked, violent, lawless. Every thought and intents of their heart from the beginning to the end was wicked. And so God was going to judge them. And what did Enoch say? God's coming with his holy ones. This flood is nothing compared to what God's going to do. What's he going to do? Bring vengeance in flames of fire, destroying all the wicked. Not with water. He's going to bring an angelic holocaust. He's going to destroy and completely consume with his vengeance. That's what Enoch said. With ten thousands of his holy ones, his saints, to convince them of their ungodliness. They do not fear God. They do not reverence his commandments. They do not believe his word. This is what it means to be ungodly. They walk after their ungodly lusts. And so he reminds them of Peter from 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 3. They say, oh, we can live and walk as we please. Remember ye the words which were spoken before by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. You heard them preach. You heard what Peter said. You've read his letter. You know the doom of these men. And then verses 20 through 25, in order to keep the people of God as an antidote from this lawlessness, he gives what we might call a panorama of the duties of Christians. Building up yourselves on your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. In other words, diligently using the means of grace. Where has God ordained that this most holy faith is delivered? Where has he said, I as the head of my church have you, the people of God, to be instructed in the oracles of the holy prophets and apostles? Well, that is the church. Building up yourselves in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost, using the means of grace, both public and family, in private keeping yourselves in the love of God. That doesn't mean you sit there and think, I'm in the love of God. I'm in the love of God. I'm in the love of God. It's like some kind of psychological talisman that you use. Oh, just tell yourself you're in the love of God. No. What has he been talking about? Building yourself up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Ghost. That's how you keep yourself in the love of God. Because when the false teachers come, do they teach you the truth of your most holy faith delivered by the apostles? No, they want to seduce you away from that faith. Looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ unto eternal life. When you get to heaven, when you have everlasting life, when the body is raised, will you deserve it? No. Mercy, he says. Set your affections and your hopes in the mercy of God in Christ he will give you at the last all the blessings he's promised. And now he says, some have compassion on them, making a difference. Judge between cases is literally what that means. So far as you may, some need compassion, some need severity, 
Not all cases need the same thing, so you must judge of cases, he says. Some, you snatch them out as from the fire. Now, ordinarily, if you wanted to get somebody to come out of their house and talk to them, what would you do? Knock on the door, ring the doorbell, wait. What if their house was on fire and they had fainted? No, what do you do? Break the door down, pull it out of the way, break the windows, get in there and save their life, right? You see the difference? Some cases, people are hardened and in serious danger, and you must despise the garment and snatch them out of that fire. Some, bear with them patiently, have compassion on them. This is an infirmity. This is not an obstinacy. So he says, make a difference. Make a distinction. Judge between the cases. Now, he says, unto him that is able to keep you from falling. This is God's name. This is a periphrase. God has almighty power to preserve us in his son. And what is more, he's also the God who can present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy at that last day. To that God be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. What is the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. So here, what is the final benediction? What is the final word of praise? Glory and majesty, dominion and power unto this God, the preserving God, the saving God, the faultless presenting God. That's the God that we are to glorify. And thus far, the book of Jude.